Hi, just a quick note that this podcast was recorded before the killing of George Floyd, and you'll probably notice that some of the discussion about what the word normal means, and some of those examples are particularly pertinent in the context of ongoing discussions about racism. Hello and welcome to the HOW Shift podcast. This is episode nine, which is about the new normals of COVID-19 and the pros and cons of adapting to them. So I'm Katie Irving. I'm the Global Head of Behavioral Science at HOW. And I am joined by a couple of colleagues, three colleagues actually, Kieran, Emma, and Rhiannon. So Kieran has been on the podcast before. She joined us on episode five, The Architects of Choice. So it's great to have her back on the podcast. Hi, nice to be back on the podcast as well. Uh, We have a great opportunity to also introduce you to two new behavioral scientists within the HOW Shift team who haven't yet featured on the podcast, but who will be regular voices that you'll be hearing over the years to come. And the first is Emma, who is a behavioral science analyst at HOW. She joined us about six months ago. So hi, Emma. Hi, it's exciting to be on the podcast. I joined HRW after completing my MPhil in the History and Philosophy of Science and Medicine at the University of Cambridge. And I have um, behavioral science consulting experience in commercial settings at Procter & Gamble, as well as in healthcare settings as part of the Cambridge Institute for Public Health. So I'm really excited to be here. Great. Thanks, Emma. And we also have the distinct pleasure of welcoming Rhiannon, who also joined around six months ago, who's a behavioral scientist at HRW. Uh, Hi, Casey, and thank you. It's uh, as just echo Emma there. It's really exciting to be on this podcast and, uh, and to be here virtually. Uh, an interesting concept given our discussion for today. I've been studying and working in the behavioral sciences for around 15 years now. Uh, And after completing my MSc in social cognition from UCL, um, I worked as a research psychologist for a period uh, before moving into a commercial uh, market research company where I co-founded the behavioral science team there. I have now been working at HRW Shift for six months now. It's a distinct pleasure. Thank you. Brilliant. So it's great to have you guys on board and it's perfect um, and very apropos to be talking about this topic. It has been a while, those regular listeners will notice, since we've done a podcast. Basically, uh, we've just been really busy and haven't managed to have some of these interesting conversations, but we've stocked up a few really juicy topics that we'll be rolling out to you over the next couple of months. So do keep your ears peeled. And The topic that we wanted to dig into, first of all, I think is the top of most of our minds, which is around the kind of COVID-19 pandemic and how it's affected us. And a lot of the discourse on social media and a lot of what people have been talking about is this idea of a new normal and how COVID-19 has changed society and created a new normal. And in particular, we've seen people kind of railing against the idea of a new normal and saying, oh, this isn't normal. But what does it mean to have a new normal? And what are the pros and cons of adapting to this new normal? Yeah, and I find these um, discussions around what normality is to be really interesting. 
um, my philosophical background always has me questioning what we mean when we're using terms like normal. And actually, there's an, a concept in philosophy that I think applies really nicely to these discussions, and that's the idea of a thick concept. So I would say that the term normal is um, is a thick concept in the way that philosophers describe. So that's a term that holds both descriptive meaning, so a term that picks out a feature in the world and attempts to describe it, but at the same time, thick concepts are also evaluatively loaded. So the term tries to deliver a value-based judgment about morality or goodness. So a kind of classic example of what a thick concept is tends to be the word courage. When you name something as courageous, you are making a description that that thing is facing up to danger. That's a very descriptive component. But at the same time, when you describe something as courageous, it's typically also a judgment of some kind of moral goodness as well. And I would say that the word normal is a thick concept just like that. It means simultaneously that something is common and statistically widespread, but also that something is morally right in some way. And I think what's happening in a lot of these debates about normality or debates that use the language of normality, they often get very heated because it's hard to be precise about whether we intend to be simply descriptive or if we're also being morally evaluative when we say the word normal. That's so interesting. And I really think you're completely on the money there. Just kind of thinking about that notion of of something being morally loaded. Um, I think sexism is actually a very good example of that. Um, I think, unfortunately, uh, many people have experienced some form of sexism. And it, it's normal, it happens, but that doesn't make it right. Going with that that same kind of duality, sort of <laughs> constipation, I suppose, is, is a different example of something that people may describe as being normal. But I think really when they say that, they don't actually mean normal. What they actually mean is that it's common. Um, so it's a commonplace thing, but that doesn't mean that that's how it is designed to be. Being constipated isn't uh, how our bodies are supposed to work, but it is something that many of us experience at some point in our lives. Yeah, I completely agree with you, Rhiannon. And those things get so tangled up, whether we're trying to say this is something that is the case and we can witness it in the world, um, or whether we intend to say that this um, this thing should be the case and that we um, would want to continue seeing it in the world. And the other thing um, that strikes me about the term normal is that ultimately it's a relative term. So what counts as normal very much depends on what we're comparing it to. And it's really obvious to me what the comparison point is in these discussions about normality. Is the thing normal relative to what happened last year or in the last decade between person to person or from this group to that group? It very, it very quickly gets complicated when we start unpacking those kinds of questions. And of course, we know um, from a behavioural standpoint that the brain operates and makes judgments in these comparative ways um, about most things. That's something we see a lot in um, healthcare market research. And another thing that we also see a lot is that the brain is really best at spotting changes. It's not very good at spotting things that stay more or less the same. So we have all kinds of normals that we take for granted and that we only notice them 
as something that was normal to us um, when they change. And that's so true. Just thinking about those discussion points around what we mean by normal and um, how we perceive that just generally. But then thinking about it in our current times that we're in at the minute. So COVID-19 is an unprecedented time. So I guess what we want to try to understand is what is our new normal? I think that's a really interesting question, Kieran. It kind of brings to mind a a few observations that I've made about some people being a little bit hard on themselves, either because they're struggling to balance working from home with their baby uh, or children, um, or maybe they've been furloughed and they're concerned they're not making enough of the time off that they have, um, or uh, perhaps they're just finding the wider circumstance quite distressful and upsetting um, and they think they should be handling it better but actually I think at this point in time we should all be trying to be a little bit kinder to ourselves a little bit more patient Um, there's a a very famous psychologist called Maslow who developed a hierarchy of human needs which are quite well known now and if you're not familiar with the name you might well recognize the pyramid diagram so he was born in the early 1900s and his work has actually become the cornerstone of social psychology Um, In fact, it's still taught today, so that kind of gives an indication of how important it is. But this model identified and organized our fundamental human needs into tiers, um, and it's pyramid-shaped because those lower levels need to be uh, satisfied and filled before we can move on to the higher levels, which center around self-actualization, so being the best version of yourself. And so those foundational levels, the very first one, Uh, covers physiological needs, so food and drink and somewhere safe to live. And the second tier up from that are safety needs, so reliable employment, health and resources. Resources include financial, of course. And so starting with that first tier there, the physiological needs, it's not so long ago that supermarkets were ransacked and absent of stock. And also with the current media coverage, it's we're frequently reminded how our natural environment that we've almost always taken for granted isn't actually safe right now. So, you know, thinking about those two things and the pyramid structure of these human needs um, and you bring into the equation uh, employment being turned upside down and you don't have to be experiencing it directly for those things to be unsettling. We all have friends and family and loved ones who are struggling and we care for them as well. So that sense of being unsettled, obviously the unanswerable question of how long will it go on for, um, it's quite natural for us to perhaps not quite have as much bandwidth and to need a little bit more self-care. I'd even go on to say that it's normal to be unsettled and be seeking a little bit more reassurance right now. I love that. I actually sent a graphic of Maslow's hierarchy with the bottom circled um, to a friend of mine who was going through a bit of a rough time and giving herself exactly like you say, Rhiannon, in a hard time about not, you know, penning her next novel um, or mastering the sourdough starter and just real recognizing that we're going through a lot and giving ourselves that space and we can put a link to a a graphic of Maslow's hierarchy into the show notes for this show so if people want to reference it themselves or send it to their family and friends they're more than welcome yeah and I definitely agree that we should definitely all be a bit kinder to ourselves um just given that this is kind of a new situation that we're all facing. So we were 
a couple of months ago, just all working in the office, going about our day to day business in terms of getting up, going on our usual commute to um, work. But now all of a sudden we're all having to work from home. That's come about all of a sudden. So having to adapt to that new way of working is something that we're all having to kind of learn the ropes around. So especially for those who perhaps are parents and have kids having to homeschool their children as well as their usual um, working day or those kind of struggling with, I'm sure we all have at one point with internet issues, technology issues and finding our feet around that and just around the general kind of lack of structure to what we were used to before um, COVID-19 came around. So having that lack of structure in terms of going to work, getting up, getting dressed and going to the office, whereas now it's more around um, getting up, trying to keep that same sort of routine in terms of having a a shower, changing into um, different clothes to make sure that we're still in that frame of mind of going to work, although it might be just in your bedroom, your office might be in a different room, and just adapting to the new way of working from home now. I've found it really useful um, on a personal level to refer to research looking at what makes people um, remain sane in uh, solitary confinement in prisons. Um, that's not a parallel I ever thought I'd be drawing in my work life, but um, that a lot of that literature talks about the importance of routine and structure and how much of our normal daily structure is imposed by our habits around you know time of work. So having that suddenly kind of ripped out from underneath us, um, I think has been a real transition for lots of us. Yeah, I I certainly have been pulling out all the stops on deploying that kind of behavioral insight into my own life and trying to bring as much continuity with my previous routines operating in in this kind of new COVID world. Yeah, even the simple things like uh, the change in our commutes. So I quite often would read on my way in and being in London, my commute typically took about an hour each way. So that's quite a lot of reading time and kind of being a little bit more self-disciplined and not being tempted by that extra half an hour in bed instead and actually using that time productively. Um, that's really quite important and and good for kind of breaking up the day and also giving that kind of clarity on structure and routine, as you were saying, Katie. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I've also been trying to maintain that some of which of those imposed structures and routines have stuck. Some have not. So I would agree. My, <laughs> I was talking with a, a client earlier today about how our podcast libraries are absolutely overflowing now that we don't have a commute. And and also, I mean, obviously, all of our interactions are virtual now, apart from those in our immediate household. And that's a pretty big psychological contrast that's a pretty distinct new normal i mean i'm having video calls with friends and family and obviously from a kind of professional perspective we did a lot of virtual meetings anyway but now all absolutely all of our meetings are scheduled virtual calls which means we can't just catch up kind of casually in the corridor we have to kind of schedule time to connect with people and we at HW have been kind of scheduling time to just chat with one another because otherwise we only have meetings about urgent business or things that we need to do and we don't just have those social chats that are so important for cohesion 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, cohesion and well-being, I would say. Um, we are actually by nature a herd creature. We're not designed to be solitary for the most part. Um, and so just sustaining that kind of little casual interaction is really important. Just kind of reflecting on, on how we're no longer getting those unspoken cues, so the facial expressions, the body language, the tone of voice, because we can't just glance over the top of our computer and see someone's facial expression to determine if now is a good time for that chat or whether they're really stressed and busy. And actually, in many respects, if there are certain tendencies that we have, perhaps towards anxiety, not having that kind of gentle, unconscious reassurance from those social cues can be quite challenging. Um, receiving an email that, for whatever reason, doesn't have a hi or a thanks at the end could lead someone into a, a thought tunnel of, oh, is, are they cross at me? Are they angry? Have I missaid something? Have I missed something? When in reality, that person may just be very busy. So it's all of those kind of unspoken cues that, that we're kind of now lacking in our environment. Absolutely. I'm not trying translates as well into the healthcare space and that a lot of healthcare professionals are now doing consultations um, virtually. So doing virtual consultation. Again, that was a kind of movement that we were already seeing before the COVID situation, but it's absolutely, you know, necessity is the mother of invention and it is absolutely accelerated. Um, there was one um, interview with a London GP in the New York Times that said that they've seen 10 years of innovation in one week in relation to how quickly they've had to move to these digital platforms for doctor-patient consultations. And certainly also in a market research context, again, we'd already seen some move towards le leveraging more of the potential of digital methodologies, but now we're using almost exclusively um, digital methods. So telephone depth interviews with screen sharing, web methods like bulletin boards and online communities. We're doing virtual groups, virtual CL days, obviously the faithful online survey, adapted ethnography with video and, um, and computer diaries. So we're having to use a heck of a lot more of those. And I think it's been great because it's given a lot of clients exposure to those methodologies that might otherwise have taken a little bit longer. Yeah, absolutely. There was a, a project that Kieran and I were working on very recently, um, and it was all designed and underway when the COVID situation hit and suddenly our CL days had to be transformed into web-assisted telephone depth interviews. Um, and uh, we ended up doing an online bulletin board with patients. Uh, but actually, I was really impressed with the wider team at just how slick that transition was. They kind of they really seized it and transformed it on the hoof, as it were, into something that was actually really quite a remarkable and insightful project. And seeing that in real time and being able to reach those really rich insights from a methodology that perhaps wouldn't have been an intuitive go-to were it not for the wider circumstances. That's, that's definitely given a, a lot of learning and food for thought on, on the versatility and adaptability of some of these techniques. Yeah, and I think that was um, a key point as well, just the fact with that particular project, we weren't ex expecting to gain so much rich in-depth insights, particularly for the um, kind of 
target group that we were speaking to. So it was kind of nice to see how that all came together and the fact that these respondent types did have a bit more time on their hands to um, kind of interact with our online bulletin boards really did add that extra value of depth and insights that we were looking for, which was turned out great. That's so awesome. And I love the, the way you talked about that as well, Kieran, about that kind of unexpected nature of discovering that actually this method works really well. And I think that transitions us nicely to kind of talking about, so this new COVID normal, what are the kind of pros and cons of adapting to it? Because there is evidence that we probably will adapt to some of it and some of this will become our permanent normal. One of my favorite examples of this comes from a uh, London School of Economics study where they looked at London commuter patterns during a, um, a tube strike in 2014. Um, so the, the drivers of the London Underground were striking, which meant that most people couldn't take their normal commute to work. And they looked at commuter patterns and they saw that during that period, obviously everybody changed their habits where they couldn't take the tube that they normally were gonna take to work. But quite a significant proportion of those people retained their new commute as their permanent commute after the uh, tubes went back into operation. So they that forced experimentation forced them to experiment and discover a new route to work. And many of them actually found they liked that better. And so we may find that this, the same kind of thing is happening here, that some of these um, forced adaptations become a little bit more permanent. And I would, I would add to that, I love that study. But from an evolutionary perspective, there are arguments that perhaps the reason that humans have been so successful as a species is that we are very good at adapting to changes. Our ability to adapt has given us like a real um, advantage over the course of evolutionary history. And we're, we're certainly witnessing that adaptability today. So let's talk about the pros and cons of adapting to this. What do we think maybe are some of the the pros of this new normal? Yeah, so one of the nice things that I felt um, that has come out of us all having to work from home now is that we're getting to know some of our colleagues a lot better, just understanding like what type of hobbies they're into or what they do in their free time, which otherwise we perhaps wouldn't have known in as much detail or just generally wouldn't have known that aspect of them and to have that kind of shared community within the company has been um yeah really lovely to kind of get to know one another yeah i i would say one of the things about about how this is a global pandemic this is um a shared experience if there ever was one so um <laughs> there's nothing like that sort of shared experience to bring people closer together my my comment on that was going to be really is going to sound really superficial after your profound um, living through history comment. Um, but, uh, it's really that it's also really interesting to see um, what people have in their homes and how they decorate. Um, and certainly with a, a lot of our global uh, clients as well, it's just it's it's really interesting and wonderful to kind of go through the keyhole and see what um, people have in their homes and see their pets and their kids uh, interrupting. I was just going to say I'm a sucker for finding people's pets. Um, your cats and Sue's dog, just I love it. I really do. 
And also just having that convenience of being able to just jump on a call with someone uh, throughout the day, have a quick catch up or have a quick meeting. It's been quite nice and it's not something that we, we would normally do. But just having that extra level of interaction with one another, it's been quite um yeah, useful and nice just to have that interaction with um, our colleagues. Yeah, I agree. And, and also on a personal level, I've been phoning some of my friends while I'm like cleaning my house. <laughs> um, and I, honestly, it's something I could have been doing before, but I think it's just the kind of removal of the other social elements of life has made that more of an instinct. And it is perfectly convenient to actually speak to people whilst I'm doing other things just wasn't an instinct I had before. Yeah, I have to say, I'm calling people a lot more. It's it's never really been my preferred medium. I find text to be very functional, like you make plans and arrangements, and then you catch up with people and I see them face-to-face. -face. I, I probably used my phone for 10 other things before I used it actually as a phone. Um, but I'm I'm definitely, definitely touching base and calling and talking and interacting in that way a lot more. And do you find, I find that those conversations are a lot more profound, like, because there's not so much other kind of stuff happening in our lives, we talk about more deep themes and more profound topics than we typically did when we were just catching up before? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm big on the deep and meaningful with my friends. Uh, we really go for those ones. They're the best. Yeah, even asking someone, how are you, it obviously has a different meaning now. Like, we actually do you mean how are you? We really want to know like how they're doing, how they're feeling, how they're coping. So it's quite nice to just have that level of understanding of what another person is going through and having that shared experience with them. And actually connecting uh, with friends that just through the nature of the passage of time have kind of drifted away a little bit, um, moving cities, moving jobs, moving schools, universities. You know, over time, there's there's a degree of attrition, but generally speaking, I've been blessed to meet some wonderful people. And one of the things that I have been finding is that in these uncertain times and where things are concerning and unsettling, people have been reaching out a lot more. And that's been really great to connect on that as you say Katie on that much more meaningful level yeah the other thing that I think makes that possible is again the kind of reduced scope of our lives normally we're so busy kind of updating one another on what's changed that we don't have space for maybe a more profound discussion and I think we've talked a little bit about this in some of our shift team catch-ups but one of the things that I found enjoyable about this new normal is that the stimulation that I have in my everyday life is dramatically reduced. You know, we, we talked about the dramatic change from having a commute and being in an office and travel and all the different things you've got going on in life. And now it's really confined to uh, my house and my neighborhood. And I notice and take smaller little joys in simple things like when I refill my shampoo or when I've uh, eaten down to the last biscuit in the tin and, and need to refill that. Things that in the old normal um, would go completely unnoticed are now little joys that I kind of look forward to and are little milestones that stand out to me. I've had a, um, a similar experience. You guys will know that um, during this pandemic, I've really kind of reorientated towards my houseplants. 
um, have been giving them a lot of extra care and getting into indoor gardening. And um, I never used to take much notice of how much those plants were growing, but I can kind of tell you every single day the very, very slight changes and the new um, herbs that are sprouting out when I'm when I'm planting seeds and so on. I don't think I would have had that kind of um, sensitivity to those really small changes um, prior to this sort of COVID situation. That's so interesting. I I think that's probably an example of the attentional bias, which is kind of the opposite of uh, inattentional blindness. So things that we we like to think we, that we pay attention to all things equally at all times, but we also know that that's not true. And I think the attentional bias is when things that previously we didn't pay much attention to, largely because they were less consequential, um, we're now actually paying much more attention to. So you're you're really noticing that growth in your plant and the change in biscuits and uh, really gaining pleasure from that. That's something really quite lovely, I think. Yeah, I definitely hope once this is all over that that's something I, I really hope I can carry with me. Um, that sort of ability to be tuned in and really present to kind of my environment around me and those small changes it gives me a lot of joy. And and I hope all of your plants live because you've oh, yeah. <laughs> lots of care. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a, a huge priority. So what are maybe some of the, the cons of getting used to this new normal? I mean, I think there's a lot. Rhiannon, you talked a little bit about the things that you get from direct interaction that we just miss in a digital context. Yeah, it's it's generally speaking, it's a lot of those nonverbal cues, the things that we process on an unconscious level. So we don't get up in the morning and say, right, I'm going to pay attention to that person's posture and their tone of voice and their eye movements and how they're framing things when they speak to me. But all of that goes on unconsciously. And again, because we're removed from that environment, all of those sort of subtle unconscious cues are gone. Uh, and so I think Whilst we are all responsible for our own emotional well-being, I think it may pay to just think a little more and just give a moment to considering whether or not a simple, hi, how are you, or thanks very much at the end of an email or at the beginning of an email can just positively shape how someone's day is panning out. Um, they might be struggling a little bit and just having that little hello and goodbye sign off can perhaps change or help them reassert and centre themselves and not become unduly worried about things because they're not able to glance over the top of their computer and read the situation and see how things are. Um, I completely agree and I would add that there's also the missing element of body language um, people say that it's up to 55% of our communication is communicated through body language. And if you think about when you're on a, a Skype call with colleagues, you, you can only see their face if, they, if they've shared their video at all. Um, so there's a, a huge amount of communication that we're missing there by not being able to kind of see their posture and see how they're holding themselves. Certainly for me, that, that's a big part of um, how I get a gauge on on how people are feeling. 
Yeah. And it is even further made artificial. Um, Adam Grant, the organizational psychologist on his podcast, Work Life, was giving an example of how when we do video calls, we have basically enforced consistent eye contact, which actually isn't how we interact in a face-to-face -face environment. You know, there's a lot of time when we're meeting with someone where we're not actually making direct eye contact with them. And especially for people who are introverts, that can be really exhausting and draining to maintain so much eye contact over the course of the day. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I hadn't really necessarily considered it in that way before. Um, but also kind of just flipping that on its head as well. So if you're giving a presentation um, of which, you know, we do quite often here um, and you're sharing a screen, you're presenting uh, a PowerPoint uh, to an audience, you have no way of reading that room because everyone is on mute for obvious practical reasons and there's no video because you're presenting a screen. So you're essentially presenting in silence. Um, and that's a really interesting dynamic. Sorry, yeah, I was just thinking, oh, it's the, it's the worst. It's really difficult to kind of read the room. And there's, it's also more difficult to get interaction going. There's a lot of silence. It's true. This, I've, I've definitely noticed that huge change um, when giving presentations. And to me, it really reinforces what we were talking about earlier, that that getting those subtle cues of, of someone nodding or even knowing that they're, they're paying attention, that for me was definitely normal that I didn't notice until it changed. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's the things it communicates to you, isn't it? As um, I think uh, the English Premier League football, they are talking about returning to playing football matches, um, but it's going to be in empty stadiums for obvious health reasons, which means that there's not going to be the same kind of ambiance as players are playing. And there are all sorts of cues that the audience gives you. So, you know, if there's a foul tackle that happened off screen, the audience can tell you that within seconds. Um, sometimes on a two-dimensional TV screen, it's not always easy to tell if that conversion went through the, the posts on, in the rugby game or whether that goal uh, whether that ball bounced off the goal corner or whether it actually went in. And again, all of that is communicated by the audience, by the atmosphere of, of the room or arena. And again, all of that is going to be missing. So I think that's going to be quite a, a, a change. That's so interesting to think about. And the behavioral researcher in me can't help but think that that's a perfect natural experiment to kind of... Um, test some of the effects of having that atmosphere and what it does to the um, to the players. They have already actually already started to notice that I mean, in the Bundesliga, which is the German football league, which has already been back in session for a little while. Um, but yeah, they basically teams have lost the home field advantage. That it turns mm -hmm. out most of that is down to the home field fans. Oh, I'm really looking forward to reading those studies. <laughs> yeah, it's a perfect experiment. So I wonder also to go back to um, something that you mentioned earlier, Katie, about doctors having virtual appointments, having to adapt to that um, in the context of COVID-19. And maybe we can think about some of what the implications might be in healthcare. The one thing that definitely comes to mind for me is that um, we know that people are more comfortable talking about difficult topics if they're in a comfortable environment like their own home. So that could be um, one advantage of these virtual consultations is that patients will be able 
potentially to um, open up a bit more honestly and with more comfort if they're able to do it in their own home. Another kind of related benefit is that you're able to approach your doctor in the moment when you're experiencing symptoms. We know psychologically that being able to um, speak about your experiences as you're experiencing them allows you to give a more accurate report of what's going on. Um, studies have shown that once you exit that stage of experiencing symptoms, you kind of almost become a different person and completely forget just how bad it was when you were experiencing those symptoms. So that ability to be kind of timely in contacting and having a consultation with the doctor, um, I think is another, another advantage of this move towards virtual appointments. Absolutely. Uh, there was a study with uh, women who were experiencing period pain um, quite severely and uh, they were asked to do some video diaries uh, and then were interviewed two weeks later and in the video diaries they talked about how absolutely awful they felt and how they couldn't leave the bed this day because it was so bad and they hadn't left the house in two days and they just felt utterly awful. And then two weeks later, they were given a follow-up interview and they asked uh, or were asked how their experience was. And they said, oh, well, you know, it wasn't so bad. Um, and it's just that hot, cold empathy gap there. Sort of when we're in that moment experiencing those, just as you say, Emma, we're much more accurate in the way that we're able to present our experiences versus a little bit later down the line when we're not feeling those feelings. They, the mental memory of them degrades quite quickly. I guess the, um, the disadvantage again comes from what we were just discussing about all of the subtle cues that when we're having a, a virtual conversation with someone, those cues that are missing. And if we apply that in a healthcare context, I suppose it's not just those cues, those social cues and those um, body language cues, but it's also quite important from the doctor's perspective to be able to kind of get a read on some of the symptoms that they can spot themselves when in a consultation with, with a patient. I'm thinking particularly of mental health concerns. A lot of that rapport is, can be difficult to replicate on on a virtual platform for the, for the reasons that we've been discussing. Especially if it's an initial uh, initial consultation where it, maybe that patient is looking for a diagnosis, it's got to be really difficult to have that confidence. And I think, you know, some of the benefits that we talked about, about being able to see the environment may also kind of cut both ways in a physician-patient consultation for those subtle cues that you described, Emma that we notice that a lot of physicians actually kind of unconsciously stereotype patients and expect people maybe that are more educated or more affluent to be more health literate, more capable of managing difficult symptoms or therefore more deserving of a particular intervention. And their kind of context and the, the state of their room or the quality of their possessions might add new ways to stereotype um, those patients um, positively or negatively. So actually add a new kind of dimension to some of the unconscious cues that they are able to pick up on. The other thing that um, struck me about what you said, Katie, was in those initial consultations, those can be particularly difficult because to bring us back around to what we were talking about at the top of this podcast, we 
the doctor doesn't necessarily know what is normal for that person, what their kind of day-to-day life looks like. And without that that information, it can be very difficult to um, build up a rapport with a patient and ascertain kind of what has changed here that, that we need to be concerned with. That's also true, yeah. I was just thinking about that in the context of people who suffer with chronic pain. So for people who don't suffer with chronic pain, any kind of pain is is clearly not a good experience. And for people with chronic pain, well, obviously being in pain isn't a positive experience for them either, but there are quote-unquote good days and there are bad days. And what constitutes a good day and how much pain they're in can vary hugely depending on all sorts of factors from the environment to activities to emotional stress, psychological stress. Um, And if the physician isn't able to see them and develop that rapport, um, how accurately they are able to appraise that um, and make an evaluation of that and the degree to which a patient is experiencing or suffering with something, I imagine can be very difficult. Yeah, and I, I guess this transition to more virtual interaction potentially also opens the door to, because we've seen in the past in um, research where we've looked at the appetite of healthcare professionals for adopting virtual consultation platforms or virtual interactions or chats, that there's a resistance to that uh, that type of interaction. And exactly what you just described, um, Emma and Rhiannon, about the contrast and the what's kind of quote normal for that individual is best captured via consistent uh, input to help kind of measure and benchmark that experience in a way that the physician can really understand it rather than just rely on that one-off um, reporting of what they've got. So maybe it this move towards the digital opens some of those doors and physician willingness to use more of those tools that will help get that more well-rounded picture for those patients. I guess with that, um, we will leave it there and there's more to come from the HOWU shift team. We hope that you are all keeping well and safe and healthy and uh, we will See you again soon in person or virtually. Thanks a lot for listening.